The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome. This is Bleacher Blums, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now here's David Tuttle and Astros master of banter, Blummer. Break it down with you. Yeah, I'd yes. like to hear about the Houston Hall of Fame sports awards, like stuff like that. So we do have some no, things to get. It's to. it's it's been a really good week, Tuttle, and it's good to be back in the bleachers with uh, my good friend David Tuttle, of course, Mark Ramos, who keeps bailing on us on our camera. If he stayed on camera, we'd probably ask him a couple more questions. There he is, Marco. Well, I, I press record just to have some some audio, and it doesn't mean y'all have to start. <laughs> I thought you were sick of us, and you're like trying to move on, man. You're no, like, dude, no, get no. this thing over with. I need material. I know material's <laughs> good because if you stick around and you've been in the bleachers long enough, you know that our, our illustrious, uh, well qualified producer, editor, audio engineer Mark Ramos will put a little nice little uh, cherry on top at the end of the podcast, so you've got to hang on, listen all the way through. <clears throat> you usually get some pretty good banter towards the end, but. Uh, we also do a really good job of chatting and having really good content before we actually hit the record button. So that might be why Marco hits that button also. <clears throat> this, man, got some, I still have lung lasagna, by the way. I don't know if I've got like long COVID, short COVID, or, you know, whatever comes with it. But here in the bleachers, I've got my good friend, David Tuttle. We chat before the podcast and sometimes some of our best stuff is left on the cutting room floor. We try and reinvent it. But uh, I was just hinting at the fact that this has been a really good week. And Tuttle also asked a great question about the Houston Sports Awards. We will get into that. Scott Rowland finally made it into the Hall of Fame. Should he have? Are we stoked about it? Uh, how do we feel about this? I mean, the whole Hall of Fame thing's really spiraled into an, a pretty amazing uh, conversation. Uh, the Astros have a new general manager and, of course, the NFL playoffs. We're going to find out who's going to be in that Super Bowl this weekend. And Tuttle... All that fun stuff is ahead of us, but what has been going on with you? Good to see your beautiful face. You look rested, relaxed. How's your uh, how's how's your mid? Is it mid or late January? It's late January. Yeah, how's it going? Late January, my friend. It's going great. Yeah, I mean, I feel like as to your point, we have some momentum building here in the hot stove, man. Maybe the oh, hot yeah. stove starting to cool off, and then real baseball is a, com a coming. But uh, yeah, Super Bowl. Uh, I mean, yeah, everything here seems to be. Uh, 
I don't know. It's gearing up. I mean, California is funny. Southern California, as you know, weather-wise, it's always kind of, you know, 50 to 60 or 70 degrees. And But I do feel like we're thawing here out of the winter, regardless, you know, whether it be mentally or physically or just spiritually. But uh, yeah, a lot, lot of stuff to get to, a lot of stuff to talk about. I thought the Hall of Fame discussion was great last time. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I want to hear about your week for sure, because uh, it sounds like you had an eventful week. And <clears throat> sometimes it's interesting watching from afar. And I do have a question for you at the end of the podcast, kind of about being a color commentary guy, difference between radio and television. And I heard some uh, some insight this week, so I, I want to throw something at you regarding that. But uh, yeah, why don't we why don't we jump into some of the excitement that's been going on with you? Well, I've got a question. You asked about the Houston Sports Awards. Obviously, it was big on social media, but huge here in in Houston, where they actually televise it. But what what's how did how did you hear about it? How did you know about it? And what made you want to ask about it? Ah, good question. Yeah, so I think really just the fact that. Um, you know, we've discussed this and we would like to branch out listeners, you know, share the podcast with your friends, please, um, you know, get at us and tell us how you listen, when you listen at Real David Tuttle on Instagram and Twitter and uh, at Blummer27 on both Instagram and Twitter. But, uh, you know, the Twitter started popping up and it looked like you had hosted, um, I don't know if it was a meet and greet uh, a couple weeks ago, you hosted something with Bregman, mm -hmm. maybe it had to do with a salsa or a barbecue something. Mm -hmm. So your off season kind of picks up some momentum. Um, once I guess you had to sign your contract first, so maybe that's why I picked up momentum. But uh, you know they have you <laughs> had to become more, have, more legitimate. That's right. Then you, but they do have you out and about doing events. So I saw that you know yeah. where you and Alex Bregman and um, I guess it was uh, Bagwell went to a barbecue and did some stuff. So I was thinking, oh, Blum's like getting out, you know, man of the people, and then. It was much more formal, obviously, for the Houston Sports Awards. And I think we've discussed it before because Dan Pastorini is a Santa Clara Bronco. And, you know, yeah, a lot of these like too. legends are around. But it's I, – I mean, it's kind of funny. I'm sure it's your Oscar evening. I mean, everybody looked uh, dressed to the nine. So I really heard about it or saw it mainly through social media. But, uh, you know, this is, I guess, coming full circle, this is really a Houston-based podcast um, in terms of fans and sports. And I think, you know, we're trying to branch out, but certainly, um, the things that you do and the things that you did were brought to my attention based on, you know, our listeners and the people that are very entrenched in what's going on in Houston. So, no, it, it was really cool. And you're right. It, you know, it is very Oscarish. It's, you know, it's, it's one of these, uh, it's kind of it's kind of funny because when this started about five or six years ago, you said Houston Sports Awards, and you said, "Oh, okay, locally there's been some obviously there's a lot of talent down here. There's a lot of teams down here, but now you're starting to recognize them, and it was kind of cool. You know, the Bagwells, Nolan Ryan, Dan Pastorini's in the Hall of Fame. There were some really cool names that you and I kind of watched growing up, and then you get to be around them, and that's you know that's where I get lucky and have the opportunity to be around these guys, talk to them a little bit more, share experiences. But this Houston Sports Awards has turned into, you know, Houston's version of the ESPYs or the Oscars because you get the red carpet approach, media's out there, paparazzis are, you know, flashing photos, and uh, you get to shake all the hands of all the Houston greats. But I think it's great that these places actually give uh, the notoriety locally, you know, it's a lot of fun to really kind of explain the heritage of the community and and bring that idea back to it. Uh, it was a blast. Alex Bregman hosted it. Uh, you know, didn't take too many digs on people. I was I was kind of hoping that his dry sense of humor would start roasting a couple people in the crowd, but uh, 
it was a lot of fun and it was fun to recognize and just kind of be around that community of greatness. I always relate it to, uh, uh, when we played golf with John Adams, he's so much better than us, but when we, you know, when we play together, we suck. But when we play with John Adams, it's almost like we we gravitate and elevate towards his game, and that's how I felt at the Houston Sports Awards. Is like, you know, I had a good run, but I these guys are like legit NBA Hall of Famers. They're Major League Baseball Hall of Famers, and now you're around him, and all of a sudden you're kind of puffed up, going, "Man, these guys are really good." And we're having a conversation. They know who I am. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, now you know how I feel when I met you for the first time. So there you go. Oh, stop, <laughs> Out there at the hey, St. Mary's parking lot. Hey, like, hey, right. he drives hey, a car too. I know this guy. This guy, Jeff Blum. He's a nice guy. He's a pretty regular fella. Yeah, he 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 puts on his pants the same way I do. One leg at a time. You know, but I do, I, and I joke, but I, I do feel like that is the cool thing. I mean, you know, we do get these, we get these pockets or these bubbles or these um, kind of these impressions of, you know, I mean, watching these guys on TV all the time, you know, they're like characters or distant, you know, and I just feel exactly. like, yeah, we yeah. all, you know, we all, you know, we all came into this world the same way. And, you know, some people are more talented at certain things than others. And we certainly laud that and applaud that. I think I remember a couple of years ago, you went to the Houston Sports Awards and Simone Biles was honored and your wife was just mesmerized oh. by meeting her, right? Like, so totally. it is fun to get out see these people as normal people. And, um, you know, and I think sometimes they probably feel more in touch. Um, I don't want to say the general public, but when somebody can tell them like you inspired me or gosh, you you know, you're, what you accomplished is so amazing and we want to recognize it, but you know, just how it, you know, personally touched, you know, touched my life. And I think they probably get some strength and some confidence based on that you know I, i'm not really sure but i'm I, I hope it's as enjoyable for them as well um but uh that's great well who was with is the are the houston sports awards you said they're like the sb so they had like play of the year like jeremy Pena obviously mm -hmm. was the world series mvp he got honored probably for a couple of things but did they did they put people in the hall of fame as well they had a couple nominees yeah. is it like that no they 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 have nominees that they actually induct into the houston sports hall of fame but at the same time it is an award show they do give out like executive of the year play of the year or moment it's either play of the year or moment of the year uh, athlete of the year, you know, they, they, they also, and it doesn't just encapsulate pro sports. They, they include the Houston Cougars, you know, Rice University. They include nice. even amateur athletes in this. And uh, they do a good job of raising awareness to some causes that they choose, which is even better. But this year it was Elvin Hayes, Bruce Matthews, and Calvin Murphy. Oh. And yeah, yeah. These and, are I mean, real people. You, like these are people you know. <laughs> like that's not just Houston. You're like Elvin Hayes. Oh God! Like that guy was a stud. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. But it, but that's kind of the cool part too, because like you just said, you have your idea of these people from your perspective, and then you have you know somebody come on stage and you start to really break down the career, and you're going, "Good Lord, this guy's unbelievable!" Like Elvin Hayes was amazing, and. <laughs> you know, he's got history here in Houston playing at the University of Houston. And then uh, just to bring the left coast in a little bit, he played in the game of the century against UCLA. And when the Cougars beat Lou Alcindor at the floor of the Astrodome, the first televised college basketball game. And now we've got March Madness. So he was kind of the genesis of this great, uh, you know, idea of televising collegiate basketball. Um, and then you've got Calvin Murphy, who was a five foot, you know, nine or 10 guard who lit it up. 
and uh, is one of these just, you know, huge personalities in the suits he wears and the conversations yeah. he has is amazing. He's still but the color pretty, guy for the uh, Rockets, is he not? Like he's still yeah, he does, he does the their pre and post. He's still involved in the organization. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And he was like the first Spud Webb or uh, Allen Iverson. Like yes. He was undersized and really talented. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, he was Jose Altuve of basketball before, you know, it was even thought of, you know? Yeah. Um, and then it was kind of funny. We were in, uh, like, there was, they had a VIP lounge that we were hanging out in before the, before the event started. And I get, uh, you know, I get a big slap on my back. It's like thud. And I'm like, holy crap. You know, that was a heavy hand. I turn around <laughs> and this massive human being goes, Jeff. Love your work. You and oh. Todd do such a great job on the broadcast. We love watching. We watch every single night. Oh. And it's damn Bruce Matthews, man. Huh. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah, I was just like, good is, Lord. Is I'm he, like, he's like, Bruce is Matthews. Is he uncle or father of Clay and all those other guys too, right? I mean, the Matthews tree, like, you know, Bruce Matthews. And uh, then he has a brother that played in the NFL. And then they all have kids that play in the NFL. He's, one of his sons is going into his 10th season with the Atlanta Falcons, you yeah, know, playing. So. And I'm, I'm yeah, it, the, the legacy is unbelievable, but it cracked me up because he turned around and he got, after he says that, he goes, uh, Bruce Matthews, nice to meet you. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, shut up, dude. I know who you are. I'm like, yeah, you're Bruce Matthews. Great to meet you, man. You know, appreciate the, 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 uh, the kind words. And it's just funny like that. And then, uh. Uh, Larry Durker got in there too. He was a lifetime legacy award winner. But the funniest thing was, is these, this is going to sound terrible. I'm an ageist. <laughs> these old dudes get up there. And I mean, Larry Durker starts breaking down his no hitter and we're sitting there going. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> they start playing the music and trying to kick him off the stage. And I'm going, I leaned over to my wife. I'm like, Man, I'm, I don't know if I want to get old, man, because you just lose track of time and start, you know, bambling. I'm like, what the heck? It was hilarious. Hey, I'm older than you are, and it, you don't so much lose track of time. Barely. Yeah, but you don't lose track of time. You start caring less about, like, you know, hey, like, hey, they want to hear my story. <laughs> That's what it is. And then he's like, but you're like, you know, you're a couple glasses of champagne in, and you know, there's some other people that have to be honored. And he's like, in the fourth inning, I had a two one count on. You're like, oh he no, did. I know, but you're like, yeah. And that was where I thought the no-hitter was like, so I knew I had to backdoor it. You're like, <laughs> people are like, no, you know, get off get off the stage. It was so That's true. Funny. Oh, it's funny. Anyway, oh, man. It's not it ages, but it's, you know what they also feel like? I, <laughs> I feel like I can relate to old people. They feel like, you know what? It's my night. I'm never going to get this opportunity again. And I'm going to make true. sure I, you know. I understand that. Yeah. So that part you get. So that's funny. But it's funny. Yeah. If I ever introduce you at an award show, I, I may go a little lengthy. And then you're going to be sitting there going, damn, didn't we talk about this like 15 years ago? <laughs> that's right. There you go. <laughs> hey, uh, so let's let uh, transition because it's kind of big news. And, you know, we're talking about the Houston area. But uh, the Houston Astros finally announced a general manager uh, yesterday. And... He is the only African yes. African American general manager in baseball, but man, I mean, what a what a, I mean, I he seems like he has more personality already than than James Click. And anyway, I'm I'm kind of excited to hear about. You know. Give me your impression. No, that, I want you to keep going on that because I'm really curious. Obviously, inside Houston, we're going to have our opinion. Well, but I don't really know. I mean, I know he came from the Atlanta Braves. I just don't know. I don't know enough about him. I mean, I saw 30 seconds of the press conference, and I just mm -hmm. you know. 
I think Jim Crane get, should get a lot of credit for being nimble and being able to, he obviously didn't love, um, you know, it's not that he didn't love the direction, but it, I, mean, I think if he, yeah, it's, I think if he thought true. James Click and he clicked, <laughs> pun intended, I think if he thought there, if they got along, he would have offered him more long-term or if he thought, so it, he was kind of a stopgap at that point. And I don't, I didn't get that feeling at this point. I don't, I think he really feels like Dusty's probably got, you know, one more year, you know, maybe two more years, but he wants to make sure the player personnel and that there's a strong foundation. But, you know, he just seemed to really, um, and I'm talking about Jim Crane, had a really, um, a lot of confidence in in the direction and what uh, and and what this guy's done for uh, the Atlanta Braves. So I, I I just don't know. I mean, I, it's only on the periphery, but I like how he, you know, how people posture and mm-hmm. shake hands and also I I like his presence. I guess that's what I was looking for. No, I completely appreciate you saying that because that you know everything we see on paper. I'll explain a little bit more about Dana Brown, but everything that we see on paper and then you see the interaction, you see the way that they talk, and you can really you can draft a, an opinion from that. And I'm with you in the sense that just watching some of the sound bites, I was like, damn, this guy's, yeah. he's impressive. He's not afraid to speak his mind. He, he believes in what, uh, in his, in his work. And the fact that he came out and said he wants to be greedy and winning is right. what we all want to hear. It may not be the, uh, politically correct to say, oh, we're greedy. You know, maybe it's overbearing, maybe it's too intense, I but so. I don't think so. I think it's a, it's a great, a great way of thinking of it because if you if you have seven or eight strikeouts in a game, guess what? You're going to get greedy and want more. If I've got three hits in a game, I always say it on air. I'm like, get greedy, get yours, you know, because these opportunities are few and far between. But Dana Brown, and it's funny, I got a couple of questions from uh, from friends, you know, when they found out the lineage and the where Dana Brown started and how he got to the position he's in is he started with uh, Major League Baseball when they took over the Montreal Expos in 2002. The funny thing about that is I was a part of that organization for three years, but I got traded in 2002 to the Houston Astros. So I didn't overlap with Dana Brown, or maybe he was in the meeting that said, yeah, you can go ahead and trade that guy and get and get rid of him. But uh, spent some time with the Expos, eight years with the Pittsburgh Pirates, Eventually got to the Toronto Blue Jays where he was an assistant GM and kind of turned that organization around as they became, you know, uh, wild card winners in 2015, 16, I think, off the top of my head. And then the more transformative year for years for him were in Atlanta, where he did a great job of drafting, developing uh, trades that they made, some of the input on the extensions that he probably had input on. But I love the fact that he has this this great scouting background and a healthy knowledge of analytics because this is something you and I talk about all the time is that eye test. And I think scouting is kind of, it's been in a slump. It's been in that winter season of, of, of the idea of analytics and scouting and how do you get those to work together. And Dana Brown, I think, is going to bring the idea of scouting back where you've got to have eyes on these guys. You've got to have it match the numbers. Uh, and where the Astros are at this moment, they're still highly competitive as far as the World Series and playoffs are, are concerned, but they need to redevelop their minor league system. They need to start drafting again. They're going to have to offer extensions, and I think this is where a perfect pocket for Dana Brown to move into it is extremely good. You're right about him being the only African-American GM 
The Astros have history in this. They they hired the very first African-American GM in Bob Watson back in the 90s. And now you've got a unique opportunity where you actually have an African-American GM and manager. And that's only the second time that that's happened in history. So Houston's a diverse city. They made a great move. I am I am all in favor of Dana Brown. And that's just basically a nutshell of, of what Dana Brown is going to bring to the table. The, I mean, the fact that we're talking about, ooh, an African-American head, you know, manager and an African-American GM is like, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I know. it shouldn't really be a topic anymore, but I, I do think Dana Brown's resume at Atlanta kind of more on the player Completely personnel agree. side, like making transactions. And that was kind of the part that I, that I glommed yeah. onto, because if we go back to, and again, this is why this is a Houston Astros podcast. If we just go back when Houston lost a hundred games, right. But they were getting, you know, Altuve and Correa and they were like coming up. The, the, the way that they built this was internally, and we've talked about that extensively on this podcast, but they built the talent from within, and then they acquired the little pieces that they needed to tack on. And so right now, maybe they feel like they're a little bit top-heavy, I think, to your point. So getting somebody like Dana Brown in, like if they can keep most of the guys this year and next year, you probably have a one- or two-year window to have a couple good drafts and a couple good uh, free agent signings and um, now hopefully have that yep. talent pool um, get to the big leagues. And, of course, that's going to be um, probably Dana Dana Brown's biggest responsibility and biggest job. But again, uh, it feels like they reloaded with the right guy. And I, you know, I see this with the NFL, these coaches get recycled and recycled and, you know, they're 500 here, 500 there. It's great to see some new blood, some new people that have had success, to your point, doing what they believe is right and doing things their own way and getting an opportunity. So, you know, obviously we don't know how it's going to work out, but it certainly on its face looks like uh, looks like a great opportunity. And then, you know, unfortunately for people here on the left coast, Dodgers fans, especially the Astros are going to be contenders for years to come. So watch out. <laughs> well, it, it's funny you bring it up in that sense. And that's why it's good to have this, you know, this dichotomy of, you know, left coast, third coast and different viewpoints because, you know, I, I, I thought the signing was great. I like him. Everything he said was appropriate. But then you start to like shuffle through the social media and you know it's a good sign when opposing franchises and teams and fan bases hate you for it. <laughs> so that, that, that's kind of to what you said. It's like, you're like, man, that was that feels like a really good sign. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, those sons of bitches got another guy. They're going to be good again. It, it, then you're like, oh, maybe it's better than I thought it was because everybody hates it. You know? <laughs> How, and give me, and this is not to bash on Brad Osmus, but I do think when Osmus was managing the Angels, you and I used to joke about a couple of different things. I think I was at a game where he made nine pitching changes, right? When they were out of the playoffs. <laughs> But why why was there um, why was there so much um, it, it and again this is social media based so we know that you mm -hmm. know living in your parents' basement and you know whacking the keyboard doesn't quite give you the authority maybe that some others have but <laughs> you had to say whacking yeah yeah well you know <laughs> pun maybe a tenant whacking the keyboard but the uh, but but why it's my understanding is it seemed like the choice came down to Dana Brown and Brad Osmus. That was kind of the, 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 I don't know, the scuttlebutt. And it seems like most of the fans and most of the kind of people that were at least 
giving an opinion were not happy if Brad Osmond was the GM. I mean, do you, is that the sense that you had? And what do you think? I mean, do you think Brad Osmond would make a good GM? I mean, I know he was an awesome catcher and a, and a decent manager and obviously a friend of yours, but what, why do you think there was some, um, I guess, contention about him being in the running? Um, you're right. He's qualified. You know, everybody, I mean, he, the, the default argument is he went to Dartmouth. He's an Ivy League guy. So all of a sudden you get the, you know, the, the default uh, uh, stereotype that says, oh, he's cerebral. And, you know, having, he had a decent career, was a catcher. So obviously we know the catchers make great managers. They see the whole field. They're working with personnel. And then, uh, you know, he, he gets the opportunity in Detroit, maybe at the back end of some of those guys' careers and really didn't have much success there. Unfortunately, uh, it felt like he was like, he felt like he was the James Click of the Anaheim Angels, you know, just kind of moved in, held, held the fort down for a little bit before they moved on to uh, Joe Madden. But I think a lot of the consensus and some of the stuff I was hearing, I think it's a little bit of the buddy-buddy between himself and Jeff Bagwell. How is that dynamic going to work out? Um, you know, Dana Brown has 33 years of scouting and development, <clears throat> which I think benefited him greatly. Brad lacks that a little bit, even though he's been on the personnel side with managing and maybe uh, acquiring players and things like that. But, uh, you know, it's also track record too. You know, what is what what does the track record look like? And I felt like that's what most fans kind of looked at was he's smart, knows the personnel, was in charge of a couple teams, didn't go spectacularly well, and maybe that's what turned him off a little bit. And I think, you know, it's just a matter of time for for – Brad Osmus to get a GM job, probably much like I think, you know, AJ Hinch is a guy that I kind of think of too, that would move into a GM spot and make that transition pretty well. But, uh, I think that may have been a little bit of it. I don't know how much of it. I just think Dana Brown, you know, what he brought to the table blew the doors off what maybe Brad was able to do at this given moment. You know, that's why what the Braves have done, they've drafted extremely well. They've made some key trades, bringing over Matt Olson. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Sean Murphy, some of these other guys, and he's also done a good job of being on the business side of it, giving extensions to Matt Olson, Austin Riley, uh, Albies, Acuna Jr., uh, you know, Michael Harris, the second, you know, some of these guys, he's done, they've done a very smart business-like decisions with some of those guys and their extensions. And the reason I bring that up or the way 
the way that brought the Tuttle brought it up is because you're going to have Bregman's uh, contract, uh, you know, expiring here in the next three years. You're going to have Altuve's expiring in the next two three years. But you also have the opportunity for extensions for Framber Valdez, Christian Javier, uh, Urquidy Garcia, you know, uh, uh, Brian Abreu, and uh, what's that guy you just named, uh, Kyle Tucker? Yeah, he might want to get paid and stay in Houston a little bit longer. So I, I agree. I don't think that was perfectly stated. The timing and expertise in this moment for the Astros, Dana Brown is a beautiful fit. Just to jump back on to the Hall of Fame talk real quick, I don't know how much more we can just destroy, you know, what writers are doing, but there were guys that we expected to get in, didn't get in. Scott Rowland is going to go in with Fred McGriff. Scott Rowland voted in by the writers. Are you surprised, shocked? Do you care? Um you know, I, I I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I do want to say what we kind of talked about off air and that what we talked about last time. I think the conversation was solid. I, you know, we always wonder, as we say, as professional athletes, you get towards the tip of the spear here, that these participation trophies, like, you know, not keeping score until you're eight years old in a soccer game, when you damn well know the kids are like, it's three to two. Yeah, we beat Timmy's team. Like, they know they keep score. <laughs> Life is about keeping score. Now, not everybody has to win, and you can learn sportsmanship. But we kept saying, like, hey, we're in a participation trophy world, and we need to be more of a world of, you know, recognizing talent and skill. And, you know, we talked about the Houston Sports Awards already about recognizing these people that were exceptional. And I am not diminishing what Scott Rowland accomplished on the field, but I do tend to lean towards, you know, this year there didn't really seem to be any standouts. Now, we can hem and haw about like, I think Todd Helton should be in Scott Rowland may be in that category, but really we have two problems. One is we need to establish what the new kind of threshold is. ESPN had a really good article about Joey Votto is like the new hall of famer. Like he's a surefire hall of famer. Mm -hmm. But when you look at his numbers, those numbers, do they stack up to Joe Morgan or do they stack up to some of these guys that got in? No, it's a different era. It's a different time. You know, we know this with relievers coming in, throwing 100 from the sixth inning on. And, you know, starting pitchers, if they can get through six innings like Fromber Valdez, quality starts is more important than complete games. So until we establish what the new rules are uh, for, uh, you know, for, um, I don't know, for barrier to entry, then we're going to have this debate more and more and more. But I feel like Fred McGriff, Hall of Famer or not, he got voted in by the Champions Committee or the, you know, the Veterans Committee. Mm -hmm. And then you have um, Scott Rowland getting in this year. And honestly, just my gut instinct tells me it feels like, oh, we got to get somebody in. So, yeah, he made it over the threshold. He's in. And that's how it feels. How does it feel to you? And you know, we did talk about this last time, but doesn't it feel a little bit like that? I think you may be onto something, and it actually triggered a thought in my head. This is going to probably be a very unpopular belief, but I think with Scott <laughs> Rowland getting in, the bar has been, <clears throat> and I, I don't mean this to be derogatory towards Scott Rowland, a great player, talked about it in the last podcast. He was a phenomenal third baseman, but voting him, voting him in from the writers, it blows my mind that Jeff Kent, Gary Sheffield, uh, Todd Helton and Billy Wagner didn't get in because I feel like, <clears throat> excuse me, every time we hit the record button, my voice goes. <laughs> um, I feel like voting in Scott Rowland didn't raise the bar. I don't feel, I feel like it either, I feel like it lowered it a little bit. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative sense. I just feel like that the barometer is starting to drop a little bit 
with Scott Rowland going in. And that being the case, why didn't a Todd Helton get in? Why doesn't a Gary Sheffield or a Jeff Kent get in? I don't, I don't get it. And now yeah. you better start explaining yourself by putting these guys in there in the future. And maybe this, where we feel like, and we're just talking about our feelings, right? I tell my wife that all the time, like, you know, I didn't say that. Well, I feel like this, right? So our feeling is that the bar lowered, but maybe the bar is not lowering. Maybe we're at that threshold of what we just stated, which is we're at the threshold of what are the new metrics that we need to use to yeah, evaluate true. this. And then if we go back to the old, like back in my day mentality, it was like, you look at the guy, is he a Hall of Famer, isn't he? Absolutely he is, right? Randy Johnson mm -hmm. threw 100 miles an hour he won a couple world series and everybody was scared shitless when they got in the batter's box so that's yeah. a hall of famer so if we're going <laughs> to use that as the metric then okay but i do think I, I i don't even know if they're lowering the bar there's always that period of transition right like when you go yeah. from you know when you go from you know a blackberry to an iphone you're like oh yeah this is weird i like the keyboard on here but you know, and then the wave of the future hits you or the fact that you think an iPad is going to be useless and now I can't live without an iPad. You're like, it was either a computer or a phone and now I got this iPad that I can't live without. So I do think we could be um, onto something with, I don't know if we're lowering the threshold because you and I both agree that Scott Rowland was a fantastic player, but maybe mm -hmm. this is the period of transition where we're trying to establish what are the metrics of a modern day Hall of Famer? And I think that might be the bigger question. Wow. Uh, that yeah hashtag that metrics of the modern day hall of famer Ooh, i'm gonna that, write that that's down. it <laughs> you should and uh you know tag that part because <clears throat> because that's where we're at what the freak is go, <clears throat> <clears throat> go ahead with that marco suck on that lung biscuit <clears throat> i'm dying over here we're back yeah, no, I got you. So, so no, but you're right. So the metrics for the modern day Hall of Famer is what I think we're toying. And I do think we've kind of threatened to have some guests on here before, but maybe this is something that um, I could, we can raise that question to somebody like a Jason Stark or some of the, um, you know, some of the writers mm -hmm. that we know. I'd love to hear their thoughts because, you know, this is something that they think about, right? I mean, they, they, many of these people actually point. have votes yeah. and I'm thinking, well, what are the metrics you're using? Because, you know, do they feel like they're lowering the bar or, you know, or do they feel like just the steroid era is still affecting that or the Colorado, you know, uh, humidor and the launching pad? Like, I mean, these guys on the field are either the best or they aren't. So I don't know. Anyway, so that, that we will, we'll hashtag that metrics of a modern day Hall of Famer, but I do think we're in a transition, uh, transitory period. I completely agree. And it'll be interesting to see moving forward. Speaking of moving forward, it is Ch NFL Championship Weekend, and we've got some big games ahead of us. I just want to get a couple of quick thoughts on what you think is going to happen. I know that, who is it, Sam Fran favored by two and a half? No, no, got they're, the, what, the over, they're, they're not favored. They're, the Eagles are favored. Uh, they're they're the dogs underdogs. by two and a half. Sorry. Yeah. They're dogs by two and a half. The over-under is at 46 and a half points, according to Yahoo Sports. And then you have the Bengals Chiefs, and the Bengals are dogs going into Kansas City at a point and a half, and their over-under is at 48, which I feel like those are the two defenses that could, and two offenses that could put up some big points. But I would imagine that uh, your, your, your loyalty lying in Northern California, that you're pretty excited about what the 49ers are doing. And I think they're one of the greater storylines because, you know, the, the, the Brock Purdy, 
I mean, what the hell is going? How is it even possible that the last pick of the draft in that year is leading a team possibly to the Super Bowl, dude? It's unbelievable to me. Well, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, and this isn't a loyalty in the sense that the Niners have to win. If they don't win this year, that's fine. I mean, the Eagles have been the best team all year. I think the Eagles' yeah. defense is certainly underrated, but it would be great to see the Niners win. And um, and then from a gambling perspective, I'll come back to San Francisco. From a gambling perspective, it's funny because Mahomes' ankle, they kept showing that replay over and over. My daughter was flinching. She was like, oh, I don't want to see that yeah. again. But they, the Bengals at one point were favored by two. And then they found no. out Mahomes, Mahomes is like <gasps> jogging around. So if you could have got the Bengals, you could have got the Chiefs plus two at home. And now they're now the Chiefs are minus one. Vegas freaked out on that because so much money was going that way. That's right. So the spread kind of went like, you know, minus one Chiefs all the way to plus two Bengals to now plus two Chiefs. Anyway, it's it's gonna be a really interesting gambling game, but I do think you could probably hedge your bets on both sides. Mahomes is gonna sling the ball. But I do think, man, if you could have got the Bengals, I'm sorry, the Chiefs plus points at home, it would have been the first time ever. Uh, that Mahomes is an underdog at uh, at home, but obviously now the the spread is switched back yeah. to minus one or minus one and a half. Um, back to the Niners question. I, I don't know why this is such a, a story, and maybe it's just because talking heads like ourselves have to get on here. They're saying, gosh, do you think Brock Purdy will be the quarterback next year? And you know, maybe they'll bring in Tom Brady. It's like, I think they found their quarterback of the future. Like, get rid of, I mean, Trey Lance can be the backup. Jimmy Garoppolo will not be re-signed. Brock Purdy has done everything. Now, you and I have talked about this, and maybe this would have made my career differently. Getting into an organization that has your best best interests in mind, getting you surrounded, like when you were with the Expos and you had Vlad Guerrero and you had all these guys with you coming up, like they kind of moved your whole team up every year because you guys got along and you were successful yep. and you were, you know, you had four, five, six, or seven core guys that went from A ball to double A AA to triple A together. I mean, Brock mm-hmm. Purdy has the respect of the defense, you know. Uh, Dre Greenlaw and uh, and Fred Warner, they love this guy. And people were saying, yeah, he hasn't played against any good defenses. He plays against the San Francisco defense every single week when he was on the every scout week, team. Man. And and then we also have the example of Tom Brady, who was not Mr. Irrelevant, but a six-round pick and slighted and he couldn't run fast. Go back and look at some of Brock Purdy because this is coming up. Go back and look at him quarterback at Iowa State. He actually beat Jalen Hurts, you know, or they lost 42-41 going for two to win the game. Yep. And he, you know, he was responsible. This guy knows how to quarterback. And I do think it's funny that that's even a debate. So he has all the guys around him. The defense is strong. But but even so, you know very well, even Mark Sanchez got in there with the Jets and they would win like 13 to six. And they were like, you know, just don't make mm-hmm. mistakes or Trent Dilfer. You can win with a guy like that. But watch Brock Purdy throw the ball. He's better than those guys, even as a you know a lay scout over here. Decisiveness. Looking at it. He isn't thinking about managing. He's like, I got a chance. Go. That's love right. That. So he's a quarterback through and through. And I just think to your point, yeah. maybe they win this year, maybe they don't. They're on a twelve game heater, so they're they're on fire. They've won twelve <laughs> games in a row. He has all of the best players around him. Don't get me wrong, but Jimmy Garoppolo That's did a huge not factor. But Jimmy Garoppolo did not manage the team the way Brock Purdy did. We start comparing those numbers, and you're like, Garoppolo mm-hmm. was solid, but that's all you have to be in this offense. Brock Purdy having an offseason as the starting quarterback, I just, I don't know why 
we have to now talk about whether he's going to be the starting quarterback of the future. If the Niners don't make him their quarterback moving forward, some team is going to be like, we want that dude. Like we want a guy like that. Right? So, so anyway, that's yeah. my, that's my homerism, but I do feel like that, uh, you know, this, I, I, I feel like he's, that part is a secondary question to whether they can beat the Eagles. The Eagles have the best defense in the league behind the Niners, and they are playing at home. And Jalen Hurts is, you know, arguably the second best player in the league behind Pat Mahomes. So um, give me yeah. your thoughts on I rambled a lot there in terms of Chiefs being home favorites, which good. they're not now. But uh, I'm sorry, home underdogs, but now they're the home favorites. But what do you what do you see kind of being the big storylines of this weekend, aside from Pat, Patrick Mahomes' ankle? Yeah, we're watching him walk now. I mean, <laughs> That's uh, right. we're watching his gait. As long as that gait is good, it's going to change the odds in Vegas. It's crazy to think about. But <laughs> I think if I'm Roger Goodell and I'm the NFL, I'm, I'm incredibly happy with how things have worked out because you've got a great matchup. Like you just said, two great defenses some pretty good offenses that are going to be able to compete against uh, those defenses in the Niners and the Eagles. I think that's a great game. Then on the other side, Joe Burrow's a story in himself, the ankle of Patrick Mahomes. How's that going to react? Playing at Kansas City, getting away from this idiotic idea of a neutral site was beautiful. I love the way that all that unfolded, but this is a great weekend for the NFL. Brock Purdy, as you were talking about him, kind of reminded me of a guy named Jeremy Pena. Brock Purdy's not not in the sense that Brock Purdy's uh, replacing an all-star, but the fact that he's moving into a lineup that is absolutely stacked. You know, he's had a chance to be around that organization. He's been, he's been in practice working against a great defense. Jeremy Pena moved into an, a, a team that he knew well, had practiced with, played with, wasn't overwhelmed by the situation, but he had such a strong supporting cast that there was no expectation on Jeremy or Brock Purdy to go out there and carry the team. Now you've got Purdy in a situation with McCaffrey, Debo, uh, Ayuk, you know, and some of these offensive weapons that can help him and give him options and keep defenses on their toes. And when he does get that open receiver, I love that he makes that snap decision and isn't afraid to throw it and take a chance. Defensively, they're going to protect the hell out of him and and and, and keep him in the ball game. That's what I love about it. So I think that you're right in that sense that maybe we're overblowing this a little bit because Mr. Quote unquote Mr. Irrelevant was a winning quarterback at Iowa State, has practiced against the best defense the entire time. But on the other side, I want to see I love the story of Jalen Hurts and what he's been able to do too. So um, I'm going to put you on the spot. What are who's going to be in the Super Bowl at the end of this whole thing, Tuttle? Yeah, you know it's funny. I heard a stat this week, and and I I just I don't. So Joe Burrow transferred from Ohio State. Um, he stayed as the backup, and he transferred for his fifth year to go to LSU. They went thirteen and zero. He won the national championship. His rookie year, he blew out his knee, but he was kind of on fire. And now he's got him in two uh, two AFC championships in a row, or I'm sorry, yeah, AFC championships, and he took him to yeah, Super Bowl. Right. So if he beats Mahomes this year and goes to Super Bowl, his last four-year run is national champion, Super Bowl as a kind of a half rookie, and then Super Bowl again. Like, how do you bet against Mr. Joe Burrow? I'm going to take... I'm not even going to take the points. They've beaten the Chiefs the last three games. A lot of it will have to do with Mahomes' health, but sometimes you just have teams' numbers. I mean, this is kind of like saying, can the Dodgers beat the Astros or whatever? I'm going to take the Bengals winning in Arrowhead because Joe Cool. And um, I don't know. I'm, I, you know, like I said, I'm going to lean Niners because 
I don't know, because I just think they have a better team overall, but I wouldn't be surprised to see the Eagles. So I'm, you know, I guess my heart, like you said, is in San Francisco. So I, I think we're going to have a Bengals Niners Super Bowl. And then that, to me, that would be a coin flip. I don't know. What about you? Do you are you going to take the favorites here? The mm-hmm. Chiefs at Arrowhead. How am I saying Joe Burrow? I don't know. Maybe because there's no consequence. It doesn't matter if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. well, there is no consequence, obviously, but it's fun to talk about. And I think that uh, I think the Joe Cool factor overwhelms, or maybe equalizes, or neutralizes—that's the word—neutralizes the Kansas City home field advantage yeah. because he doesn't yeah. give two shits. This guy, he went, and, and I love the fact that he flipped the field in Buffalo in a in a in a hostile environment in weather. The dude seems unfazed. I mean, this guy is a big yep. game player. And I love that he can carry these guys. And the Bengals have an underrated uh, defense, I also believe. And I think that uh, he's going to do a good job of exposing the Kansas City Chiefs. But I do believe, you know, if it turns into a shootout, then maybe it, it leans the way of Patrick Mahomes. But I think if it's actually a good football game, Joe Burrow pulls it out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheer for the Bengals. And it has nothing to do with my MVP quarterback from Fantasy League and Patrick Mahomes because he's phenomenal. I just think it's uh, Joe Burrow's to take because he's he's got that moxie about him. I like that. And then I, I just think like what you just said about the San Francisco 49ers. Overall, I that there's there's few teams in the NFL I enjoy watching because of how they play the game. And I love the way that the Niners play defense. And I love the way they play offense with Brock Purdy back there. So I think it's going to be Niners, Bengals in the in the Super Bowl. Nice, good. I'm, I like I like that we're aligned. You know, here's one thing that I don't talk about. But in March Madness, they always tell you to bet on the coach because you don't know the players, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in the NBA or the NFL, you know the players a little bit. I do think people don't talk about this either. Nick Sirianni is a second year head coach. I know he's, he's been good. around. He's had some success. He's good, but he's a little inexperienced. You have you know Shanahan was you know obviously the offensive coordinator for the uh, Falcons when they when Tom Brady had the big comeback, but Shanahan kind of. Yeah, Shanahan's been around the block, though. I mean, he wasn't the head coach, and he runs a great offense. I do, I'm just kind of, I also see that little experience, right? They've been in the Super Bowl. They've, you know, mm-hmm. they were in the Super Bowl two years ago against Mahomes and lost, but, you know, they had a chance to win at the end. Like, I just feel like Shanahan and, and John Lynch, you know, they just have, to your point, they have San Francisco on the right trajectory. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, let's let's transition away from the NFL. So we've covered, you know, everything that we need to cover, really. I have a question for you. Uh, it was kind of brought to my attention this week. They were talking about NFL commentators, right? It's funny that Kevin Burkhart and uh, Greg Olson are now like the number one, uh, wow. you know, kind of team. And they're probably mm-hmm. going to, I think they're going to have the Super Bowl. You know, I don't love them. I, you know, KB, they call him all the time, Burkhart. I think he's actually better baseball when he has the desk there with all the, you know. He's really good at with, baseball. Uh, he's a good, he's a good I, host. I agree. He's a better host. So I don't love him as the kind of the game guy for Fox, but that's my opinion. But they were talking about that those guys talk too much. And I think Romo does a good job of not doing it. And so this leads to the question, which is you as a color analyst, and I've heard you, and sometimes because I know you, I feel like, oh, Blum's pissed off. Not at TK, but the game, the way they're playing. <laughs> yeah. But you won't say anything for like a couple of outs. Oh, man. And, you know, and, and so... 
But you're a TV commentator, so we do know there's a subtlety between radio and television, mm-hmm. right? When you listen to radio, they're like, all right, this team's moving left to right, and they're wearing their red uniforms. You're like, you gotta, you have to do a little more painting. So there is a skill set there. But what, what do you think is you know makes a good color commentator? It could be NFL or Major League Baseball. And then what have you been taught? Give us a little peek behind the curtain. What have you been taught about, you know? now that you've done it for quite a few years, but what have you been taught about when you're supposed to speak and when you're not? Because I do think the good ones obviously let the picture speak for itself. Yes. And that's the, the hardest, that's probably the biggest thing between TV and radios, because you do have to, you have to paint a picture with your words on the radio side. And one of the things that I've learned over the course of my career is that the radio side the play-by-play guy has a lot of pressure on him to set up situations and explain what's unfolding. And as far as the color analyst side on the radio side, you know, it's it's also tough too because you have to paint the picture on why things are happening or what you anticipate happening and really go into, into depth to try and explain it. And on the TV side, I didn't know this when I first started, but it was about four or five years when I got into it. And it was actually when I worked a game with uh, Robert Ford, who does radio play-by-play, but we needed we needed help on the, uh, the TV side, and he came over and did play-by-play. And he told me after the first game we did together, he goes, he goes, I felt like today went well. And he goes, one thing I have to learn is on TV, it's a, it, this is an analyst game. And that kind of woke me up a little bit to the point where you're right on the TV side, that's a little more explaining what you're seeing, what you're what you're seeing on the TV screen. So it's a little more analyst driven in the sense that the anticipation and talking about the, the intricacies of the game are there on the TV side, as opposed to the radio side where you're trying to paint a picture. And uh, that's probably the one thing I learned the most. But the other thing too, is you really have to, I think you have to have a good rapport with your play-by-play guy because he's going to emphasize some of the situations, but you also, the hardest thing to learn is when not to talk. If, and the one thing I've, I've really tried to emphasize with myself is don't try and fill airtime. If I don't have something good or poignant or exciting to say, I'm not going to say it. And that's why sometimes if I do get upset, I don't want to be too emotional about it in the sense where I want to, you know, bury somebody or bury the game or bury an umpire or expose my emotion too much. So I'll pull back and maybe just shut up for a while. But in some of those bigger moments, the TV screen is going to give you plenty of information and we can pull back, let the crowd noise and let the environment and some of the celebratory stuff kind of unfold. But uh, that's probably the biggest things I've learned is learned when not to talk and that TV is more analyst driven, amazingly enough. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's it's great insight and it, and it totally makes sense when you think about the visual piece of it. They were critiquing Greg Olson a little bit, saying like, you know, they're running a too high thing, you know, you know, too high safeties here. And then you can see this guy move over. Like they were talking about the intelligence of the audience as well. And I think baseball and football are significantly different, but I had never thought of it. Because Olsen was really cool. I like when he talks about too. it. But my favorite thing about Romo was Romo would say, all right, they have a two safe. They're going to run the ball here. Like they're going to audible to a run. They audible to a run. So I like that he was predicting things that were going to happen before they happened. And then he let us watch that versus the analysts that I think are maybe a little, they kind of, they don't, 
I would like to hear, this is, I guess, my point when I heard the critique, because I hadn't thought about it that deeply. I would like to hear what the player was thinking, you know, more than I would like to hear. You don't have to describe like, now you can see him over here, right? With the little telestrator and he's going to move out and he's going to slide and he's going to do this. And now look, he kept him on his left shoulder. Like we can all see that part of it, right? We can see. So yeah, you want the why. Anyway, so you can see it, but you... I just want to. I want a little more thought around um, what he was thinking. Yeah, you want to know the why? Why did that guy move in that direction? Was it was it a the play why. that he had? You know, there was a there was a play with Alex Bregman in the 2017 AL. I think the ALCS, and the reason he made that decision in that moment is because of a play he made in August, and he talked about it. So that's what you want to you want to know why. Um, but to your point about you know you know uh, two two safeties high what if you start to get into like the real the language of the game and you start to talk at too high of a level that the fan won't understand that's where you start to lose fandom and one of the things that I made a point and I still do every time I I take that microphone and put it on the headset is I'm trying to call a game for the twelve year old fan. If I can explain it to a 12-year-old, and this goes the same thing with my kids. If I can't explain something to my kids and have them understand it, then I'm talking, then I need to it does dumb it down is not the right thing, but I need to make it a little more practical, a little more understandable. And that's why I say a 12-year-old. Because if I can encourage a 12-year-old to, to watch the game, learn to love the game, and want to play the game, then I've done my job. But that's mentally. When I'm doing a telestrator, I'm talking about a swing. I'm not talking lag, launch angle, and you know, uh, vertical bat angles. I'm not. If I say that to a 12 year old, the kid's going to look off in space and go, "I don't care." You know, how about just getting the barrel to the ball? Just try and simplify it and talk to that 12 year old me, who didn't know that much about the game. And I want to. You've got to encourage and inspire, but really, that 12 year old kid is who I'm talking to, whether it be boy or girl. You know. All right, I got another one for you. That's funny because the 12-year-old kid, I think the two things you said are outstanding, which is the why and the 12-year-old kid. If you can incorporate that in the same model, I think it's mm-hmm. awesome. If you're telling a 12-year-old kid why Bregman barehanded that ball versus getting it with his glove, you've I mean, that's a home there run, pun intended, right? Like you yeah. now you're not talking about, oh, he was, you know. Anyway, he's, you know, this guy bats whatever here and the shift is on here. No, no, no. It's like, look, the last three times when they pitched this guy in, he hit a couple of two hoppers down there. So you can see Bregman before the pitch move over. That's mm-hmm. the why. And then look, he knows he's got a fast runner. I mean, like that part I think is important to paint that picture. Um, speaking of a 12-year-old kid, and this is probably where we can end it, is Ronald Acuna Jr., um, I saw that Ooh. on social media, hit a home run in the Dominican Ooh. Republic. Uh, I would like... That's so that's a little beyond being a 12 year old kid. Like, we've talked about uh, the years of, you know, the years of like dosing guys for pimping home runs has like come and gone. Like, these guys are allowed to celebrate, but that one seemed a little excessive. And, you know, Latin America, we see a, a, a very significant the way the brawls are, like, guys bring bats to the brawl. Everything's um, like, to and, the extreme. you know, here that's not accepted. And then, the way he pimped that home run, I mean, he got halfway down first base and he like, you know, he was kind of taunting their dugout and getting the fans all riled up. Like, I mean, there's going to be a riot after a home run. I mean, <laughs> I, I think he probably went a little too far. So, I mean, hopefully 12-year-old kids that watch that realize that, I don't know, is that once in a lifetime or what? Did you did you happen to see that home run uh, pimp? 
Well, yeah. And it's one of those things where you're like, you know, you see the tweets like, oh my gosh, did you see Acuna Jr.? And now I'm scrolling through everything trying to find it. And then when I finally watched it, I was like, good God. What? Did, I mean, did you just win Mr. Universe with that swing? I don't, you know, I, I don't understand. I, it was probably out of context, but I mean, what did you do to be able to pimp a home run like that? I I don't, I don't know. Maybe it was a five run home run. He hit it over the line or something, but it, it was, uh, it, it was excessive. And that might be a that might be a shining example of of what not to do and how we need to tone it back because it's gotten to so far out there. That was out there. <laughs> that was out there. All right, good. I'm, I just wanted to put Ooh. a hitter on the spot to tell me when when do we cross the line, right? Because you're kind of like I would imagine if you're in the dugout, you're like, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. And you're like pointing at him and you're doing your little hand, you know, air handshakes, and then you kind of got to the point where you're like, holy crap, he's still going. <laughs> Another great episode of The Bleachers. Uh, we appreciate everybody tuning in. And of course, at the end of every podcast that we do, Tuttle and I want to give our gratitude towards the military, both veterans and currently serving both home and abroad. We greatly appreciate everything that you bring to the table and give us that freedom to talk a little bit about our favorite uh, sports. And of course, all of the first responders, military, I mean, sorry, police officers, and firefighters, everybody running into harm's way, the EMTs that uh, pick us up and get us to those essential workers who keep us safe and get us back healthy and ready to charge the field. All those teachers doing a great job. One more semester left and you will have your summer break, but we are closing in early or quickly on another Major League Baseball season. We appreciate that and we're looking forward to it. And remember, if you are at the age of 45 or greater, Get checked for colorectal cancer and make sure that you get that done. We want to keep you safe and out there as long as we possibly can. We appreciate everybody joining us in the Bleacher Blum. So for Tuttle and I, get after it and believe it. Nice. I was actually going to think he could probably just dub in what I, me saying. I know that, you could if you want you. to. Yeah. I'll, you, I was ready no. for it too, just in case you're, you're you gonna... nailed it, Blummer. You nailed it.